Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Welcome to year two of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, a refreshing and captivating interview with top sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. From Matty Olchek to Bob Costas, Mike North to Pat Foley, they reveal entertaining, memorable, and emotional stories, some you've never heard before. I'm George Hoffman, and please make sure you subscribe to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is sponsored by Vienna Beef, makers of Chicago's hot dogs since 1893. Find them on the web at viennabeef.com. And by Dynamic Manufacturing, awarded the General Motors Supplier of the Year 23 times. Honored the legacy, pioneer the future. Visit them at dynamicmanufacturinginc.com. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is also sponsored by Serenow Law Group, top-notch pros in reducing your rising real estate taxes. They're on the web at serenow.com by BetUS, America's favorite sportsbook for a lot of reasons. Check them out at BetUS.com. And by the Polina Market, purveyors of the finest meats in the Chicagoland area since 1949. Visit them at PolinaMarket.com. This week we feature the host of the Big Ten Network and former star at ESPN, Dave Repson. When I was in college, there's going to be a network that's going to be devoted to the Big Ten. And you are going to be the, the face of this thing. I mean, I would have just been absolutely floored and flabbergasted and said that is literally the single most perfect job for me. So yeah, I mean, it's been a pretty cool ride. Seems like forever, Repson was a main cog at ESPN, but his move to the Big Ten in 2007 changed the course of his career. A native of Urbana, Repson spent most of his youth in suburban Chicago. He's an author, a former investment banker, and a journalist who was rejected more often than a leader in block shots. So, Dave Repson, tell me a story I don't know. Oh, man, that is a very nice setup. First of all, George, I'm going to start you in 1996. So it is almost exactly 25 years ago when I started at ESPN. I was 27 years old. I'd only been in the business for three years. So in some ways, I'd gotten to ESPN rather quickly. Although, as you mentioned in your intro, there were certainly a lot of people who never thought I would get there along the way based on their reactions to my resume tape. But so I've been there for for just a very short period of time. I would guess maybe two weeks. And I had been previous to that, the weekend anchor at the worst station in the Quad City. So I went from Market 88 to ESPN. 
And this is the height of ESPN's power. Now, I, I was hired to do ESPN News. I was one of the original hires when that network launched. From the worldwide leader in sports, this is ESPN News. Just two days after Dennis Rodman gave photographer Eugene Amos a boot in the groin, the NBA has indeed kicked back. We will have the details coming up very shortly. And that launch date actually was November 1st of 1996. And among the group of that hires, Greeny was probably the most prominent person ultimately yeah. in that group of hires. But also in there, John Butcher Gross, who's still there, Chuck Garfine, who is well known to Chicago fans, particularly White Sox fans. Michael Kim was in that group. Of course, you see him on marquee. Yep. So a lot of a lot of different familiar names in broadcasting, and I, I was one of them. And a couple of weeks in, they invite us to an all-on-air staff meeting. So imagine you're just a couple of weeks removed from being at the worst station in Market 88. And here I am sitting in this meeting with Olbermann and Patrick and Chris Berman and Mike Tirico and Chris Fowler and all of these people who I've grown up thinking so much of in, in the business. And I've been watching many of them for years. And a couple of them are, are probably people that I would say to a certain extent I idolized. And now in a weird sort of way, I guess I'm their colleague. And so this meeting starts going along and they're telling us all kinds of things about what's going on at the various networks and whatnot. And at the end, they open it up to questions. Does anyone have any questions they want to bring up to the group? And Keith, who, of course, not only is, is kind of at the height of his uh, kind of powers, I guess, at ESPN, for lack of a, a popularity, certainly. I mean, he and, and Dan, I mean, that you know Sunday Big Show is the biggest thing going in the world of sports broadcasting. But, you know, he's also in, you know, quibbling with them uh, you know, quite often. <laughs> yeah. and, and so, certainly that's well known. And so he raises his hand, and you could kind of see this collective eye roll among management as he stands up and he starts in on on a couple of his issues and the one that really stands out to me is he starts complaining about the loudspeaker system that the loudspeaker system was too loud and so this is a time before everyone was kind of all connected on their terminals and so the way that you got someone to you know that you would talk to someone at work if you needed to be in a question form or whatever is you would page them over this paging system and so you know someone would press the button and they'd say, you know, George Hoffman, call extension 3258. And then you'd pick it up and call and, and it would go throughout all the buildings at ESPN. And so this paging system, Keith was complaining that it was too loud and it was giving him a headache and there was a speaker right above his desk and it was just blaring. And so essentially management says to him, you know what, Keith, I think you might be the only person who has this problem. But if you can get other people on board with this, we'll consider this complaint. And they kind of move along. So there's some other stuff that goes back and forth. And, and the meeting ends. And I go back to my desk. And I've maybe been there for like 20 minutes or so. And I feel this presence hovering over me. And I look up and it's Keith. And he looks at me and he says, which one are you? <laughs> I, said, I said, Keith, my name is Dave Repson. I, I really respect your work. You, you know, you're... You're just great. And he says, well, I, you know, I, I, I know you were at that meeting and, you know, this loudspeaker thing's really bothering me. And so they said, <laughs> if, if I get a petition going, maybe they'd consider it. So here's the petition. You want to sign it? And so I'm sitting there, George, and I'm doing the mental calculus in my head. I'm saying to myself, okay, this guy is basically my idol. 
I mean, I absolutely think the world of him. I think he's just fabulous. And as it turns out, he was very helpful to me in a couple of different junctures in my career, particularly when my book came out, had me on his show uh, and, and was just wonderful. I mean, it's been nothing but great to me. But of course, I knew none of this at the time. All I knew was that he seemed to be under management skin, and that was the last place I wanted to get. And so I said to him, I just don't think it, at this point, it's the best thing for my career to sign the petition. I hope you'll understand. And, and he was great. I mean, he kind of laughed. He's like, ah, I get it. I get it. Uh, nice to meet you. Kind of walked away. And, <laughs> and that was the end of it. But that was my introduction to, to life at, at ESPN was, was Keith's failed petition. And I, I don't believe that he ultimately got the, the loudspeaker system lowered. What, one thing I will say about Keith before we leave him, George, is his writing was so good. And, oh, yeah. and this was a time where ESPN really emphasized how well you wrote. And I would every Sunday go into our little system that we had, the kind of newsroom system where you would write your scripts. And I would read all of his lead-ins just to kind of see how he did it. And those 25 or 30 second lead-ins were so brilliant, so well done. I mean, I, I have always said that in terms of scores and highlights and kind of what we did in that time at ESPN, he was and is the greatest ever to do it. I'm not going to argue with you on that. By the way, I love the fact that you were an IHSA All-State, not in sports, <laughs> not in broadcasting, but theater. So you kind of knew that you wanted to be a performer then. I would say I started um, thinking about a career as a broadcaster probably when I was about six or seven. And it occurred to me, I, I think I had a really good sense of my limitations at that point. And, you know, you kind of look around and you're like, um, you know, really not even close to being the best guy at recess. And so I'm probably not going to be able to make a living playing sports. Right. So so what else could I do? And, and this uh, I was born in 69. So I really became a sports fan, kind of 75, 76 in there. Uh, we're living in Chicago, as you noted, in Northbrook. And this was just a golden age of sportscasters in Chicago. I was a White Sox fan, and so Harry Carey was, of course, the voice of the White Sox at that time. Here's a pitch, a bouncing ball. Hey, it hits the bag, and he's not running. He thinks it's going to be a foul ball. He's standing at home plate. He's trying for a second out. Good throw is going to get him. He's out. And you had Jack Brickhouse at WGN. Open the ball here, and that brings up Lou Brock. He's nine hits to reach that 3,000 total. And the way he started out this series... Could almost wonder if he wasn't going to do it while they were in town. He needed 14 when he got here, and he has five of them now. And then all the local guys who were so good, right? I mean, and, and of course, local sports just had so much power back then. But, you know, Johnny Morris, I watched all the time, and Tim Weigel. And it wasn't too long after that. I mean, a little, a little while after that, of course, that, that Gian Greco came to town and mm -hmm. Chet Kopik and all of those guys. And so I was just, I loved it. I mean, I was just totally into sports. I would, literally turned down the sound at a little black and white TV in my room. And I would write down the lineups for the White Sox game and I would turn down the sound and I would announce the game into a little tape recorder. I mean, I was like seven and I was doing this. I would announce my Stratomatic games that I was playing. I mean, all that. I was just totally into it. And yeah, when I went to Glover North, had a, they had a really strong theater program and a really strong broadcasting program. In fact, I, I got to do play-by-play -play for high school games in the 1980s on radio 
and on TV, which is pretty remarkable to think of it at that time. But yes, we uh, we were. I was involved in something called group interpretation, which was like competitive theater, and you had this state competition. These were um, maybe like thirty minute pieces. They was this was adapted from a Gene Shepherd sto short story called Lost at Sea, and the premise of the short story was these were all of the people's lost at the letter C. And these were all the people whose names started with letters at the back of the alphabet. What was going on in the front of the room was a mere rumor to them because the desks were arranged alphabetically. So I, my character was Schwartz. And yeah, we had this competitive theater uh, deal and, and we came in second in the state. I'm still a little bit bitter that we didn't win, but yes, I was named to the all-state cast. So you know, at the, the, the same year that you had, uh, you know, like the, the guys from Simeon getting their all-state medals in, in basketball, uh, you know, Marcus Liberty and whatnot, I, I got the exact same all-state medal for theater and uh, was awfully proud of that. Well, so where would you have gone if you decided to ditch the idea of being a sportscaster and go into theater? I mean, would you have become uh, an actor, a television star, perhaps a movie star? Could we today have boasted that Dave Repson won an Emmy, a Tony, and an Academy Award? I never for one moment career, uh, thought of a career in theater, George. Uh, I, I think, you know, part of my problem with broadcasting, and part of the reason I did not go into it originally, was I think, I again, I was just very pragmatic, even as a kid. I, I think I realized how long the odds were in all of these fields, in, in entertainment, in broadcasting, and I kind of continually kept giving myself outs along the way of things that I could pursue otherwise. I, I did pretty well in school. I uh, ended up doing really well on my, on my law school boards. And when I left Northwestern, I, I thought I would probably end up being a lawyer. And I, I'd actually kind of set my sights on, well, if I got into Yale, I would go. And um, so in the process of doing that, I thought, well, you know, I'd love to go to Yale because those people don't end up becoming practicing lawyers. And then it occurred to me, well, if you don't want to be a practicing lawyer, the best way to avoid doing that is not to go to law school at all. <laughs> that seems like the safest strategy. Yes, you can see why I did well on the LSAT. I, I, had, I was great in, in terms of logical deduction. So I kind of got off that fast track, thank God, like the best thing that ever happened to me. Not that I, it's a great career and I, you know, I'm sure I would have found something that would have made me happy. I worked on Wall Street, which was the most miserable year of my life. And, and at that point, I realized I really need to give this broadcasting thing a try. But, but no, I never gave, gave any thought to, to going into theater. But, but it, it does feed into kind of this notion of I enjoy performing and, and being in front of people and all that kind of stuff. Would you like to save money? <laughs> Who wouldn't? How about saving money on your real estate taxes? I have and did so thanks to Serenal Law Group, accomplished professionals ready to put money back in your pocket. All Chicago properties were reassessed by the Cook County Assessor's Office, and some of you got eye-opening increases. Serenal Law Group has the ability to lower that. The deadline to file your 2021 appeal is 30 days after your township opens for appeals at the Board of Review, so don't waste a minute contacting Serenal Law Group so you 
you can save. There are no fees, so you don't have to pay a dime unless they save you money. And take it from me, they've saved me thousands. And they do it in a professional and friendly manner that makes your life a whole lot easier. Serenow Law Group handles appeals throughout the greater Chicagoland area from residential, commercial, or industrial property. They're ready to fight on your behalf so you don't pay more than your fair share. Visit their website, serenow.com, that's S-A-R-A-N-O-W, or call them at 312-373-0015. Mention promo code OFFMAN, that's O-F-M-A-N, to get a discounted fee on your 2021 property tax appeal. Contact Serenow Law Group, S-A-R-A-N-O-W, and start saving. March Madness is drawing near, and BetUS Sportsbook is your home for all of it. Plus, the NBA, NHL, UFC, and the PGA Tour. Sign up now, and first-time bettors will get a 125% bonus with our promo code STORY22. That's STORY22. Future odds, live betting, and great parlay plays also await you at BetUS. BetUS. You bet, you win, you get paid. Go to BetUS.com and remember our code, STORY22. The easiest way to hear more great guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is to follow me on social media at George Offman. That's O-F-M-A-N, just one F, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. We return with Dave Refson on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. Well, you were a sportscaster at Northwestern at WNUR, so when you decide this is where you want to go, here you are getting rejection letter after rejection letter as you try to begin your career. And I'm thinking, why do you keep banging your head against the wall? Well, I really wanted to do it. So I had this backup plan all along. I went from, from this job uh, on Wall Street to a small market in Texas, Sherman, Texas, where uh, a friend of mine from high school had gotten a job as a reporter out of college. And, and he kind of set me up with his news director and they hired me without any tape, really without any background. I mean, I, again, I was working as a banker and I went from there to be a, a local news producer and reporter in this tiny market. You had sent out all of these tapes with a yes. rejection. And here you are in this town of about 40,000 back then. And you do so without any tape. Yeah. So I get there without a tape. And within about a year, I start sending out tapes. People there say to me, you're pretty good. And when I was in Sherman, I think I sent out about 75 tapes looking for my next job. And, and they were actual physical tapes back then. You know, people send out links now. But I would, go to the, I would go to the post office, and it got to the point where it was embarrassing because the guy at the post office, every time I would go in there, he'd be like, where are you sending this one? And he'd watch the local news. It's like, you know, you really want to live in Topeka more than you want to live here. And I'm thinking, yeah, I'd live, want to live just about anywhere more than I want to live here. But, but you know, <laughs> yeah, you know, well, you got to kind of try to move up and whatever. But I, I started sending a self-addressed stamp envelope in them. And I would say to the news, to the news director in the letter, if you could send back the tape, that would be great. Because I noticed that my news director, when he watched tapes, he never rewound them, George. He would just pop them out when he was done. He'd eject them. And, and so I thought, well, if I could get the tapes back, right. then I could figure out where they're ejecting them. Like, at what point are they deciding this guy stinks and I'm not interested in him? And it was depressing. I mean, it would be like 45 <laughs> seconds into the thing. Mm. Like, oh, my goodness. 
And uh, I was very fortunate that, that right about at the two-year mark, I, I got a call from the Quad Cities and, and I got offered a job there at a station, frankly, that was far worse than the station in Sherman because the station in Sherman was a great station for a small market. It, we had every bell and whistle, a lot of different toys. We were a dominant number one. So I went from there to the worst station in the Quad Cities by far. I mean, it was a dreadful, dreadful station, but it was in a much bigger market and there was a lot more to cover there. There's minor league sports and University of Iowa and University of Illinois and, and all that stuff. And then, yeah, I went from there. Uh, I was there for about a year, but again, like the second I got there, I realized how bad the station was. And I once again started sending out tapes and, and I probably had again, 35 or 40 rejections. And then just kind of all of a sudden it, it started hitting a little bit. And, and I got an offer from CNN SI, which was a joint venture of CNN and Sports Illustrated. So that was my second ever offer in the business on tape like number 110. Uh, and then when I had an offer at CNN SI, I was able to, to parlay that with, with the help of an agent who I procured at that point and, and still is my agent. Uh, into an offer at, at ESPN to start the ESPN News. Yeah, so I always say I was like three for 110 in this business, roughly. And I got, and two of the three were CNN and, and ESPN. So it is definitely a lesson in, in perseverance, no question. I did my first Sports Center final four weekend of 1997. So I started November of 96, and I'd already been moved up to do some Sports Center by April of 97 and was pretty regularly on the weekend overnight Sports Center, which was 2 a.m. Eastern time was when that thing started, uh, but pretty regularly on that about a year into my time there and, and just kind of became a kind of a jack of all trades, uh, you know, kind of did a lot of, of different stuff. And yes, I did. I felt very, very fortunate. And it's, it was very stressful. I think I realized once you kind of accept that this is your reality and, and that, that kind of stargazing disappears to a certain extent, although although I would say I always had a little bit. I mean, you know, every time Berman walked by, you're kind of like, wow, it's Chris Berman. But I would still say, like, you realize that you were in competition to a certain extent with one another, with these people who were very good friends of mine, and, and many remain very good friends of mine to this day. And we were certainly very collegial with one another, that this group of, of people who were hired at that time. But you also realize, like, yeah, there's a little bit of a zero-sum game. <laughs> there are only a certain number of, of spots. There are only three sports centers a day at that point. And and there were other opportunities as well you know, within the network, whether for me, it was wanting to do a lot of college sports. I love college sports. And that was where my real passion was. And hey, you know, can I do half times for college football or college basketball, or whatever? I ultimately ended up doing the college game day radio show, which was wonderful for me that I did for five years. But yeah, I mean, it was, uh, you know, certainly, and I know you know this and everyone in this business knows this, there is a, a part of it where you feel like you never work a day in your life because you're passionate about what you do. And it's so much fun. And we're all living out our dreams. I'm sure you have felt that. I certainly felt that. But it is also a job. And it is one that comes with some inherent stresses to it. But I never lost kind of that feeling of and I still haven't to this day. Because if you know, if you would have told me, when I was in college, there's gonna be a network that's going to be devoted to the Big Ten. And you are going to be <laughs> the, the face of this thing. I mean, I would have just been absolutely floored and flabbergasted and said that is literally the single most perfect job for me. So, yeah, I mean, it's been a pretty cool ride. You spent 10 years at ESPN doing Sports Center, College Game Night, NFL Live, etc. Tell me a story I don't know about not only your time there, but the interaction with all these egos, because that's really what you're up against. There's a lot of talent and a lot of egos. 
I got to do a lot of really good stuff. I mean, stuff that I was really interested in. As I say, college sports, I got to report for Outside the Lines, which was wonderful. I hosted two World Cups. That was really neat and kind of came out of nowhere. And, and, and like that was something that I, re- I don't, still don't know how it happened. But no one helped me more than Bob Lee. We hope the FIFA servers are up to this because there are a lot of people watching around the world. They might mysteriously go down. Yeah. I'm sorry, what was that inside? Because we're relying on communication. For those who say it's, it, it is base canard and unfair that FIFA makes it up as they go along, they are making it up as they go along right in front of us. Like Bob Lee, who really, you know, didn't, I mean, I didn't know him. I didn't have any kind of relationship with him. He just kind of was a colleague. And I think he saw something in me, maybe a little bit of himself and that, you know, I was a good writer and, and I, um, you know, I, I, I enjoy history and I, you know, I was kind of thoughtful in, in the way I went about things, I think. And the first day I host the World Cup. So that was 1998, the 1998 World Cup. So I've been in the ESPN for less than two years. I found out in December of 97 that I was going to be the studio host for the World Cup. Now, it wasn't as big a deal at ESPN as it is now. And I was the main guy hosting that 98 World Cup. I have never been a studio host before. So I've been an anchor, right, where you like read your lead in and then the highlight rolls and you read the highlight. But there's a whole different art to being a studio host. You're leading a conversation. It's unscripted. You don't know where it's going to go. You need to react to what the analyst is saying. You need to kind of be a bridge between that and sight. And there's a lot to it. You're a traffic cop. And that's what I do now. And that's what I really have a passion for. But at the time, I had never done it. And all of a sudden, here I am, and, and it's a big deal. And the first day, I must have been terrible. I, I don't remember anything about what happened that first day, but it's about halfway through the day, and Tariko shows up in the studio. And again, like, I'm I friends with Mike. I mean, we're like friendly, you know, we say hi, we play golf together a few times. We maybe had lunch once or twice. He's a very nice guy. Uh, but we were not friends in the way that I would consider, you know, like Mike Greenberg a friend, right? Like that's a friend mm-hmm. of mine. Right. Tariko was someone I worked with who was very nice to me. He had no reason to do this. He comes in and uh, we, we like tossed a sight and, you know, we stopped down and there he is. And he says, hey, you got a few minutes? I said, yeah. And he calls me to the side, George, and, or, you know, takes me to the side in this little area off the side of the studio. I said, hey, you know, I know this is a really big opportunity for you and I've been watching you at home. And just a few things to think about when you're hosting. And then, George, I am not kidding you. In the next 15 minutes, he literally taught me how to be a studio host. I mean, taught me things that I still use to this day on how to bridge from what one analyst says to another, on on kind of how to prepare for what you might say in between, on how you organize your information, just on understanding what your role is. I just didn't know. I was a really solid guy who they would put on anything, who they really liked, who they kept giving new contracts to, but I wasn't a superstar, nor do I think I I was going to be. So 2007 comes along. The Big Ten is interested in you, but you have some reservations. So tell me, what were the reservations like, and how did you wind up leaving ESPN and joining the Big Ten? Yeah, I wouldn't even say I had reservations, George. I hadn't even really given it any thought. I, I had no intention of taking the Big Ten Network job. What, what happened was, unfortunately, I think this business, I left ESPN on the greatest terms. But at the time, I was frustrated with them. I was coming up on my fourth contract. They offered me a really long contract at, ex, you know, essentially kind of minimal raises. And you just kind of thought, like, 
man, I have really, I busted my tail and I've done all of these new things in this last contract. And I've really proven myself, I thought on a lot of different levels. And, and I guess I just felt like I finally got to the point where it became apparent that at least at that time, they only valued you in the way that the marketplace valued you. Like they wanted me there and they made it more than clear that they did. But, but I felt like to kind of break through financially, and I hate to say it, but I mean, like, that's part of what it's about, right? Like you're at a certain, now we have kids and you're at a certain point in your life where, hey, like that stuff does kind of matter. The Big Ten had expressed an interest and I was the guy they were going after. I was their main guy and I was their only target. And, you know, this whole thing, all of a sudden, George, the wheels start turning. And I'm thinking, wow, this is actually, this sounds like a really cool job. And, you know, they still want me to do play-by-play, which I, I was doing some of that at ESPN. I was one of the few guys who had the opportunity to do both those things. About a week later, they had me back out. I had dinner with Commissioner Delaney and Mark Silverman, who was the original president of the network, who, who's now uh, one of the guys who runs Fox Sports. But it was just, those guys were awesome. And, and I just kind of said, like, you know, I'm going where they're going. I, I was totally into it. I had high expectations for this, George. But it has exceeded even my highest expectations. It has been just the greatest thing to be back in my hometown, to be covering the league that I care so deeply about. It has really connected me with the schools and with fans in a way that, that I just could have never imagined. 11 schools, 252 varsity teams, one great network to cover it all. Welcome to the Big Ten Network, your ultimate source for Big Ten sports, featuring the games, passion, and tradition of the nation's foremost athletic conference. I'm Dave Revson, and this is Big Ten Tonight. Did you know General Motors 2021 Supplier of the Year is located in Hillside, Illinois? Dynamic Manufacturing not only remanufactures transmissions for the likes of GM, but also as a state-of-the-art facility. Its capabilities include engineering new or existing products, along with manufacturing, machining, logistics, and re-energizing used batteries for electric cars and energy storage systems. I've seen their operation firsthand, and their nearly 1 million square feet of operating space is extremely impressive. Dynamic was founded by the late, great John Partipillo in 1955 and is still family-owned and operated by the next generation. For more information about Dynamic Manufacturing, visit their website at dynamicmanufacturinginc.com. Dynamic Manufacturing. Honor the legacy. Pioneer the future. I'd love to know what your reaction was when Northwestern finally, finally made the big dance. The number eight seed out of the West. There they are, the Northwestern Wildcats. Oh, I was delighted, George. I'll tell you a crazy story on that that I've never told publicly. You know, look, I try to be really dispassionate on the air. I did go to Northwestern. And, um, you know, like I like to see them be successful, but I think the biggest thing that I have realized in this job is that I have a responsibility to all 14 of these schools. And um, as I've gotten to know each one of these schools along the way, and, and you really become a part of their athletic department and their fan base, and, and, and I root for all of them. I mean, I know that sounds crazy, but, but I want to see everyone be successful. It can't be Lake will be gone, right? You can't be you know, 14 teams that are all slightly above average. But, but it is like all, any of your kind of preconceptions about any of these schools or your feelings about any of them really rapidly dissipate. And, and, and that part of it has been really great. 
but I was actually assigned to call the Northwestern Michigan basketball game, the game where they uh, had the length of the court pass from Nate Taphorn to Derek Pardon for the lay-in and, and won the game. And they had lost a game the Sunday before, Saturday or Sunday before against Indiana, where they had, they had really blown the game. And, and we had to come on for the post game afterward. And that, that game would have gotten them in. I mean, they were up by like seven points with maybe two or three minutes to go. And they just fell apart. And I was really, I mean, I was crushed. It was really hard. I really felt bad for them. And I said to my bosses, I said, you know what? I, I, I think, I don't know that I could handle calling that Michigan Northwestern game. Like, I, I just don't think I could be dispassionate. Like, I, you know, I wanted them to win. And, and I just don't think you can kind of go into a game doing that right? It's just, it's not fair to yourself. It's not fair to either team involved. And so I recused myself from the game and instead went down to Champaign and called Illinois against Michigan State and swapped with Kevin Kugler and he called that game. And so he got to call the, the most famous play in Northwestern history that got them to the tournament. And I have not regretted it at all. I, I really haven't. I really feel like it was the right call. I don't think it would have been fair to Michigan. I don't think it would have been fair to anyone. Um, because it was the one time where I really felt like I would have gone into a game wanting one team to win. And I, I just think you can't do that. So, so yeah, it was a really, it's, it's crazy. But as I said, I've, I've never talked about that publicly. And, and I, there is there are moments now, Kevin, like if you go back and listen to that call, it is a perfect call. Kevin Cooler is a brilliant play. Oh, he's guy. outstanding. I mean, so good, George. And he nailed it. Long inbound. I mean, he absolutely nailed it. And, but I've never for a moment thought like that should have been me or it could have been me. Um, I'm totally fine with it. I'm so happy they won. You've had, as you've mentioned, some wonderful moments at BTN, but one rather harrowing one. So tell me a story I don't know when you couldn't blink and your face went numb. Yeah, uh, weird deal. So yeah, I had Bell's palsy. Um, it happened a few years ago. I was actually at a Blackhawks game. So we were supposed to go, we were going to Michigan State for Michigan State, Michigan to do our pregame show for basketball that next morning on a, on a Saturday morning in January. And we got invited by some friends to go to the Hawks game and sit in the Harris Club. And, you know, it's such a great deal. And I'm gone so much during that time of year. My girls really wanted to go. And so I said to my wife, okay, well, let's, let's do this. Um, here's what I'm going to do. We'll go to the game and we'll, we'll hang out and we'll sit in the Harris club. And then maybe after the second period or so, or so I'll get in the car and I'll drive to East Lansing. I'll just do the show on, you know, five or six hours of sleep because it's important to me to, to have this time with the family and with the girls and with our friends. And so we're there and, and it was weird. I had this like weird sensation in my jaw as we're driving to the United Center. I was like, wow, that is really weird. It almost felt like I was like shot in my jaw. And um and, and kind of my face went a little bit numb. And like, that is really strange. And so we're at the we're at the game and I, I'm you know if you've been in one of those, you know, it's like a skybox or whatever people probably been in those and there's just food all over the place. And I found like I was having trouble opening my mouth to get the food in. Like I had a hot dog and I couldn't open my mouth. My eye was tearing and I started talking to my wife and I'm like, and I, I, I couldn't form my words. Like my mouth just wasn't working. It felt like it was paralyzed. And, and she said, I think you're having a stroke. 
and you need to go across the street to rush and you need to figure out what's going on. And so I'm like Googling, you know, stroke symptoms. And I said, no, I, I don't think I'm having a stroke. I think it's just something else. And, uh, but it was weird. And so I, I didn't go to rush, um, but I went into the bathroom. I'm looking at myself in the mirror. I'm like, wow, I, my, I can't blink my eye. I can't blink my left eye. And so I get in the car against my wife's wishes, because at this point, it's like 10 hours before our pregame show. And there's no one else there to do it. Like, it's got to be me. But I called my bosses on the way there. And I said, there's something really weird going on with me. And I don't know what it is. And then I pulled over and I, I kind of got on Google, <laughs> which is always dangerous. But I kind of went through my symptoms and Bell's palsy came up. And then I, I searched Bell's palsy. And I was like, yep, this is what happened to me. This is what I have. I have Bell's palsy. And uh, so, yeah, so I got there and I like went to the Walgreens across the street and I got an eye patch so I could fall asleep because I couldn't close my eye. I mean, people have had so many more serious things happen to them, of course, that are that are life threatening. And I knew this was not life threatening, but it was career threatening. I mean, there are people who get balls, oh, yeah. balls palsy and, and, and never recover, like literally never regain that motion, you know, that, that movement in their face. And so yeah, for like two weeks, I just kind of sat at home and, and it just incrementally got better. But it really wasn't quite right, I'd say, until like May or June of that year. And I still have symptoms. My eye still tears sometimes, uh, especially late at night if I haven't gotten a lot of sleep. So it, I wouldn't say I have 100% recovered. I've probably like 99% recovered, but it did, uh, it was scary. And it, it definitely, uh, yes, uh, you, you know, it, it yeah, I, I think it just kind of puts your life into, you know, kind of what's important and, and whatnot. It, it, it really puts it into perspective. You mentioned, by the way, that this is your dream job. You're home now where you have three children. Are any of them involved in sports? Do they want to follow in their dad's footsteps? My oldest has written a little bit for they have a, a student-run website that covers the team. She is a passionate sports fan. In fact, I, I wrote a piece about watching White Sox games with her uh, that appeared in the New York Times a number of years ago. Uh, she is, she loves sports. She was a pretty successful field hockey player in high school, and they offered her to, to call some games field hockey, and she turned it down because she was a little bit too busy. So I, I don't think she really wants to do it for a living, uh, but she's a good athlete. All my kids are really good athletes. So they're all good athletes, far better than their father. <laughs> My wife's a pretty good athlete. So, so I think that's where they got it. But I don't think anyone would want to do what I do. Vienna beef, two words synonymous with hot dogs. They're the home of the Chicago hot dog and an institution since 1893. If you've had a hot dog, chances are it was from Vienna. And did you know there are more locations selling Vienna in Chicago than McDonald's, Burger King, and Wendy's combined? There's nothing like biting into a juicy and delicious pure beef Vienna hot dog dragged through the garden, which includes yellow mustard, onions, relish, tomatoes, sport peppers, pickles, and some celery salt. And oh, those Polish sausages dripping with flavor. And look for the spicy smoked sausage available in your local retail stores. It includes a perfect blend of seasonings such as crushed red peppers and brown sugar, creating a bold and zesty taste. Vienna products are available in restaurants, grocery stores, and entertainment venues such as the ballparks cup 
clubs and socks, stadiums, museums, and zoos. Plus, you can purchase them online, coast to coast at ViennaBeef.com and on Amazon. And remember, Vienna is not just hot dogs and sausages. Look for their farm makers' chili, mini bagel dogs, condiments, and classic deli meats. Take it from a guy who was weaned on, then sold Vienna products. It's the mark of excellence since 1893. Check them out at ViennaBeef.com. Going back to the subject of um, all those rejections in TV, you also wrote a book entitled The Opening Kickoff, and apparently it didn't leave the tea for a while. Tell me a story. <laughs> I don't know what subsequently happened with that. I would say that's the thing I'm probably, well, launching the Big Ten Network is the thing I'm proudest of in my career and, and the success that we've had. Uh, very close behind is The Opening Kickoff. Uh, the Tumultuous Birth of a Football Nation is, is the subtitle of the book and is about the early years of college football, focusing on the period between 1890 and 1915 and kind of making the point that everything that is happening now in college sports, both good and bad, had its origins in that time period. Now, it originally started, so I we had put the kids to bed. This is the summer of 2010. And I grabbed the ESPN College Football Encyclopedia. I don't know if you're familiar with this book, but it's probably like 900 pages long. And I just start thumbing through the sections on the Big Ten teams. And I stumble across this paragraph in the Wisconsin section about this guy, Pat O'Day, who was a legendary player at Wisconsin in the 1890s and then disappeared during World War I and returned to much national acclaim in the 1930s. I was like, wow, that's an interesting story. I knew nothing more about him. And I started reading about him and I was totally fascinated. And I thought, this is the greatest story, and we need to do something about this on the Big Ten Network. And I was going up to Madison. Actually, Brett Bielam had asked me to give a speech in Madison the next week. And so I went up there, and I made an appointment to go to the university archives to look up everything they had on Pat O'Day. And I started reading about him, and I was like, okay, if this isn't a piece on the Big Ten Network, I want to write a book about this guy. Like, this guy is totally amazing. And so I actually pitched his biography as a book. I worked on researching it for like a year and a half. And it got rejected basically by everyone under the sun. I got a really good agent who knew all the right people to get it to. And every single one of them said, no one wants to read a book about an Australian drop kicker from the 1890s. They were all unanimous in that opinion. And so, so we were like, oh, for 30. And, and then I reimagined the book with a different agent. I found a different agent. And she said, well, what if you kind of painted on a broader canvas? And what if you made the book about the early history of college football and you make Pat O'Day a character in the book. And so that was ultimately what I did. And, and so we were able to sell it, although the, the challenging thing was that, oh, you know, the first agent had gone to all of the right editors. They were really good at knowing who to go to. And so then when we went back with this book, everyone's like, no, I've already seen this book. I'm like, no, it's different, it's different. Uh, I'm like, no, no, it's not different, it's the same book. And, and we're not taking it. Although it was in fact different. And yeah, it ended up, um, took me like four years to, to research it and write it. And it, it did great. So yes, it was like 0 for 35 or 1 for 35. We actually, I think, got two offers ultimately to, uh, to publish it and um, ended up making the New York Times and Boston Globe bestseller list. It made the New York Times sports bestseller list and it made the Boston Globe overall bestseller list. What is it about you, rejections, and success <laughs> that work together? I'm really stubborn, George. I, I think that- um, <laughs> You think? I think I'm very realistic in life. Like I, I know that there are 
certain things that maybe that aren't going to work out or, or certain ideas that I have that are impractical. And I'm perfectly willing to accept that. But I, I think that book, I just felt like we had something there. I really believed in it. And people still read it and talk about it to this day, that it really kind of created this new argument, for lack of a better way of putting it, of kind of the way that we view college sports and an understanding that college sports has kind of always been this way from the very beginning that college sports has been exhilarating and exciting and a PR mechanism for universities, but that it's also been really messy. Like in the 1890s, college sports was messy. You, like I, have the distinction of talking to many famous people in our industry. Come to think of it, I'm, I'm talking to one right now, but back Gosh, in 2003, no. <laughs> you were on a golf course with what turned out to be one of the most notorious figures of the 20th century. I vacillated in telling you about this, George, because <laughs> I am not proud of this. Um, here is the story. I was 2003, as you say, and we are on Martha's Vineyard. We lived in Connecticut. I was at ESPN at this time. And we went for a, a week's vacation on the vineyard and rented a house there. And I was able to negotiate with my wife, who is great. Like, she's the most patient person in the world. She's not one of those people who, like, limits me or whatever. But we had a young kid, and this was her vacation, too. And she's like, go play golf one time. Knock yourself out. So I negotiated one round of golf. And so I call Farm Neck, which is the, the really famous golf course on Martha's Vineyard where, you know, like Bill Clinton plays there when he's out there and uh, Barack Obama would play there. And, and so it's a private course in the morning. It's a public course in the afternoon. And so I call for a tea time and they, I'm a single and they say, yeah, we got a tea time at two o'clock. Why don't you come on out? We got a threesome and you can join them. I said, great. And so I go out there and I'm at the range and I'm hitting balls and I'm not hitting them well. I'm kind of stressed out. And it's like maybe 152. And I look at my watch. I'm like, oh no, I got to go. I got to go. So I get my cart and I speed over to the tee and there are two carts there, one with two bags on it, one with one bag. And the starter says, put your bag on the, the cart with one. Those guys went inside to get bug spray. They're coming back out. I'm like, great. I'm working on my swing, work on my swing. They come out and I'm not paying attention. It's these three guys. I'm kind of looking down. I'm not really looking at them. And the first guy says his name, and I say, hi, I'm Dave. And the second guy says his name. I say, hi, I'm Dave. And the third guy says, I'm OJ. And I look up at him. I'm like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> what am I supposed to do? So think about this. Okay. And so at this point, it's like 158. We're teeing off in two minutes. This is the one round of golf I've negotiated. I am at this point a public figure. Now, I'm not a, you know, again, like I work at ESPN. I'm on the air. Uh, again, I'm not, I'm not trying to pretend I'm anything I'm not, but I'm a public figure. And I'm thinking to myself, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to go with this guy? I really want to play golf, <laughs> you know, but this doesn't seem like a great idea. And, and in that moment, I'm just like, I, I just, we teed off like they were going to the tee. And so we tee off. And the crazy thing was I get in the cart and I sit down and OJ sits next to me. So they've got a threesome, George. And they don't even put OJ with one of the other guys that he knows. So at 157, I'm thinking like, who am I going to be playing golf with? At 202, I'm hurling down the first fairway in a cart with OJ Simpson. It was crazy. And yeah, it ended up being a really weird day. Um, you know, look, he obviously, you know, my, my joke afterward, I, I kept kind of thinking of quips in my head. I'm thinking, well, he's, he's obviously going to quit after nine to continue the search for the real killer. 
right? Uh, you know, <laughs> no, no way this guy's You're got time for 18. You're a nasty man, you know that, don't you? <laughs> no way this guy's got time for 18, right? Uh, so, <laughs> but he, you know, look, he was, he was very solicitous kind of along the way and going out of his way to kind of convert America one golfer at a time, right? And to, to being on his side and kind of what are you supposed to do? He asked me what I did for a living. I said, I was an accountant. He didn't know. <laughs> he apparently didn't watch enough ESPN to know who I was or, or frankly, frankly didn't care. And so, yeah, that was the end of it. Now, I will say that at the end of it, I said, uh, I'm going to turn in this score for my handicap. Would you mind a testing on the scorecard? Which I think had to have been the most transparent thing that anyone had ever done. But, but yes, yeah, so I got him to sign the scorecard which I still have. And then George, I mean, I really was paranoid of that, that it really, you know, it was a bad decision. I mean, in hindsight, if I was presented with the same position in the same spot today, you know, I, I, I wouldn't play. I mean, I, I just think I, you know, I wouldn't ride with it. Um, but, but at the time I, I did, and I was a little nervous about it. I only told a couple people and kind of said, Hey, don't, don't tell anyone. And then, uh, yeah, just kind of, that was it. That was my round with OJ. Well, I end all my interviews with this final question, though. We may know the answer to this already. If not for sports broadcasting, what would you have been? I think I would have been an attorney of some point. I think maybe I would have done something like in broadcast law or been a broadcast agent or been a sports agent or something like that. And, and I think maybe I, I, I would have enjoyed it. But, but man, George, this has been an unbelievable ride. I, I hope it's one that continues for for many, many years. And I just consider myself so incredibly fortunate to have gotten to do what I literally, as I said to you, would have wanted to do. If you would have asked me, what's your dream job when I was six or seven years old, I would have said this. Well, this was great. Thank you, Dave Rebson, for telling me a story I don't know. My pleasure. Thanks a lot, George. My thanks to the Big Ten Network, ESPN, and WGN-TV for those great highlights. And as always, a big thanks to TJ Rees for putting this podcast on the map, Will Hatzel for his fine mixing and editing, and Nick Tochi for our great graphics. And to our generous sponsors, Saranal Law Group, top-notch pros who will save you money on your real estate taxes, Dynamic Manufacturing, Honor the Legacy, Pioneer the Future, and the Vienna Beef Company, home of the iconic Chicago hot dog since 1893. By BetUS, a pioneer in the sportsbook industry for almost three decades, and the Polina Market, top purveyors of the finest meats and much more. Tune in next week for another fascinating episode of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman, and that's all she wrote. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly two million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.